0: Hello and welcome to this extra inning of The Ballpark, a podcast from the Phelan U.S. Center here at the London School of Economics. I'm Chris Gilson, Managing Editor of the Phelan U.S. Center's blog on U.S. politics and policy, USAP. In November of 2023, I spoke to William Walforth, Daniel Webster Professor in the Department of Government at Dartmouth College. Professor Walforth conducts research on international relations, with an emphasis on international security and foreign policy. His recent research has covered subversion in great power politics, unipolarity and U.S. grand strategy, status, social identity and power politics, and Russia and the West. We spoke about the United States as the world's unipolar power, the rise of China and what it means for the international role of the U.S., and about his upcoming book with Jill Kastner on great power subversion. Well, welcome to the Ballpark Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. It's my pleasure to be here with you. Much of your past work focuses on American unipolarity. Could you explain for our listeners what unipolarity is and who gets to define it? I'm really interested to know if it's the unipolar power that gets to say that there are no others, or can the concept be measured more objectively? Thank you.
1: Yeah, the answer is uh, to the second question is yes, but of course, to answer that, we have to get to the first question, which is what it is it's a one superpower world. If we think of a superpower, as a state that is capable of maintaining credibly uh, complex alliances on political and military and economic terms in multiple key regions at the same time, um, then there's really only one in the world today that can do that. And that's the United States of America. Um, And so past worlds in the middle of the 20th century, the 19th century just did not have one state, looming over others to that degree. And as many changes as there have been, I still think it's fair to say that the world currently is closer to that model than others. How do you measure it though? Um, That comes down to um, metrics that uh, we try to get a handle on through the best data we possibly can. Three big categories capture these overall capabilities that give the United States this superpower capacity. It's overall economic capacity its technological capacity, and its military capacity. Summed together, we can think of these capacities, these capabilities, as resources the U.S. gets to use to try to do things in the world. And, um, and so then attempt, the attempt here is, in fact, to measure and assess this status. I hate to use the word, but I will objectively. Namely, it's not really for the United States just to assert it, And uh, the U.S., uh, but it's it's not necessarily something other states get to define out of existence if they don't like it. It's kind of a reality of international politics that people have to deal with.
0: How can this idea of unipolarity that you talked about, and and kind of even in the context of the the definition you've given as well, how can that idea help us to understand the U.S.'s foreign policy decision and the foreign policy decisions of other countries?
1: I'll start by saying it's important not to exaggerate what you can get from something like polarity or unipolarity, it's, um, it's a measure of resources that states have. And what they do with those resources is, is up to them, and, 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 and there's, there's a variety of choices they can make. And nor, do, uh, every, nor does every attempt to try to use resources to get what you want actually work. And so a lot's happened in international relations, a lot happens, that falls outside the purview of this analysis. However, with that caveat duly registered, I would still insist that polarity in general and unipolarity in particular help understand the array of choices open to states. And by and large, just as being rich gives you kind of more choices than being poor, having a ton of power resources in international politics give you choices uh, of a greater variety than uh, if you don't have a, a lot of power resources. So what does polarity do? It gives the United States the option to follow a grand strategy that involves maintaining a huge array of political and military allies across Eurasia and to make those alliances credible and to seek to create cooperative posses, if you will, or uh, teams or groups out of those allies. That's, a, that's a, an option that most states don't have. Um, and If the United States chooses that option, namely to maintain these alliances, that then shapes the strategic possibilities of rivals such as China and Russia. In other words, because of unipolarity, or at least in partly because of unipolarity, the United States can pursue this grand strategy, and having pursued it, China and Russia look out in a world with more constrained options than they would otherwise have. And so those are very consequential strategic choices that are shaped, if not determined, by unipolarity.
0: So I just want to pull on this idea about, um, you have mentioned China and Russia. And I think a lot of our listeners might think of power in terms of military power, economic power. And I'm probably accurate in saying that the U.S. has more economic and military power than those two other countries. What other measures, if any, would go into that measure of unipolarity that the U.S. has that maybe a country that is powerful, like Russia, like China, probably doesn't have?
1: I think it's important, even on the economic uh, measure, to flesh it out a little bit um, and think about the fact that really to act uh, in international politics, uh, In the way that I'm discussing, it helps not just to have a big economy, but to have a rich one. Um, So, being both big and rich is useful. Of course, it's nice to be rich even if you're not big. Uh, You know, uh, being Taiwan is great if your living standards are all we're thinking about. But if you are um, a a, a small, rich country like the Netherlands, um, there are limited options. Uh, Being a big economy, but still poor or middle income, also. Uh, places limits on what you can do. So when we talk about that economic measure, it's that combination of bigness and richness that really helps. And there, of course, the United States is in some sense in a class by itself because China's economy is comparable to the U.S. in its gross size, but it's still a middle-income country. And that does limit opportunities for China. Um, But also I would unpack um, the military capacity, if I may just very quickly, which you mentioned, which is not just overall military spending or the number of uh, systems, it's capacities to do things. And one of the things the United States does with its military power is it maintains what um, analysts call the command of the commons. That is to say it dominates the open spaces of the sea and the skies through much of the world, not close to the shorelines of rivals like China, but up to them. And this gives it this capacity that I referred to earlier to act in multiple regions in this very decisive way. And so that's a concrete measure, manifestation of that military capacity. Finally, I would say that in addition to those two overall measures, which are very complex and you could talk about forever, is technological preeminence. And this is really important in today's today's world where uh, the technology assumes such Important dimensions and all the other aspects of power, uh, both economic and military, and 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 they're just looking at the technological piece. is complicated, is difficult, but it pays big dividends. And on that metric, there's no question that China has made major advances. But if we dig beneath. And the superficial data where you can pick out one sector or one area where China has indeed achieved parity, if not dominance, and look at the bigger picture, we show, um, that is to say my colleague Steve Brooks from Dartmouth and I show, a substantial continued leads by the United States, but especially substantial continued leads if the United States acts in concert with its highly developed, wealthy, and technologically advanced allies.
0: So some commentators feel that we have moved on from a unipolar U.S. dominated world to a multipolar world of the U.S. and China. Some people even talk about a new Cold War uh, between the U.S. and China, the vein of the, the Cold War between Russia and the U.S.
1: What are your thoughts on this? There's no question we've had change from what you might call the era of peak unipolarity or unambiguous unipolarity or whatever you want to call it, namely this period between the collapse of the Soviet Union uh, in December, 1991. And the, uh, whenever you want to date the rise of China having reached this, a, critical, a critical turning point, I t- would tend to put that, that, that transition to the, to the, to the current uh, more attenuated unipolar system. at something around the time of the global financial crisis between 2008 and 2010, where people realized the US position had taken a hit, the lengthy wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, et cetera. And so uh, there's been a change since that peak or unambiguous unipolar period in that China's rise is really substantial. And I hope no one listening to this podcast comes away thinking that I'm in any way discounting the significance of this dramatic rise. If you just look at all of these measures, but especially raw output and GDP, it's, just, it's an astonishing transformation of the world from what it was back in uh, 1990. So there has been change. However, That change is still not sufficient to talk about a transition to the bipolarity we had in the Cold War, or to say nothing of the multipolarity we had in the early 20th century, the 19th century, or earlier. And that's because there are still substantial gaps between the United States and China. China's capacity to revise the international system in its favor, its capacity... To upend America's global position is still less than the capacity the Soviet Union had to do the same during the Cold War. And in a way, I mean, I could unpack that more if you're interested, but in a way, the message is actually optimistic. It's that we actually, based on the distribution of resources, based on polarity, we actually are not necessarily headed for a Cold War of the same intensity and same level of danger as the one that we experienced in the last century. In a way, I think hyperbolic assessments of China's rise or hyperbolic assessments of American decline do more to feed um, to feed um, hawkish views of our current standing vis-a-vis China and the current relationship than they do to feed uh, the opposite. And our analysis that sees the United States position as stronger than many do today actually opens up opportunities for less conflictual policy efforts than you might otherwise attempt if you really believed that the U.S. position in the world were sitting in, I'm sorry, were hanging on tenderhooks. So I, I, I think that um, uh, the bipolar Cold War analogy does have its uses, but a lot of... Of that analogy is pointing to the differences that are emerging today and in particular the limits on the degree that China can completely upend the international system and particularly do so through the use of military force.
0: I do want to pick up on that point about China and the international system. Um, From what I'm aware of, the USSR was not integrated into the international system in, in any Meaningful way, and for those of us who, for those listening who weren't around during the Cold War, it was always a sense of USSR being this other that wasn't part of the part of the West. My understanding is that certainly China and the US are much more economically integrated, and probably maybe even diplomatically. Other, you, you can tell me, is that what you're is that what you're sort of talking about in terms of China's a, it, China can't upend the system because it is the system.
1: That's partly yes. And in a way, I mean, I guess a quick way to answer is lots of people are concerned by China's massive economic integration. What's the conversation in the EU? What's the conversation in the United States? What's the conversation in Australia and many other countries? Have we reached the point where we are so dependent on China that we have to scale us back? We're afraid of what they might do with, uh, if relations were to turn even more sour, what they might do with economic influence? Uh, that their massive economy and massive trading position, uh, uh, massive investment position lead to. That's a legitimate concern. But I would much rather be worried about economic competition with China than than than, than to be worried about China's conquering, physically conquering through military force, crucial players in the international system. And this may sound anachronistic to people, but this is what drove the Cold War. (laughs) The fact that China presents a smaller, uh, uh, more manageable military challenge to the status quo is a good thing. The fact that China's uh, economic power looms so large over the world is a challenge, but it's a challenge that I think is much more welcome than its alternatives. And the final piece of this puzzle is the really complicated but ultimately fascinating one of who's more constrained by economic interdependence? United States and the OECD West, or China? And that's a tough estimate. You see lots of complex economic papers being discussed about supply chain dependency, and who's really dependent on whom. I'm willing to enter that debate. I think it's a good one uh, on some grounds. Uh, my estimate right now is China is far more constrained. China has more to lose from allowing economic statecraft to get out of control than the United States and its wealthy allies, provided that the United States and its wealthy allies hold together.
0: So kind of building on what we've been talking about, how would you say the relationship between the US and China has evolved in in recent years? Um, And in what ways, if any, does this go against the conventional wisdom of how China's rise is challenging America?
1: Well, I mentioned before that uh, I freely acknowledge, happily acknowledge, uh, and we all must acknowledge the important changes between the current situation and the one that occurred uh, the one that characterized what I was calling the uh, peak or uh, unambiguous uh, uh, years of unipolarity. The world has changed in such a way that um, rivals, notably China, uh, now assess that they have the capacity to push back to some degree against what they regard as an unfair, undue level of influence in their regions by the United States. Put in more concrete terms, China's dissatisfaction with America's position up close to its shores uh, in Taiwan and uh, in the South China Sea, that's just dissatisfaction was always there. It was there in the 1990s. It's increased now in salience because China has assessed that it has the power to begin pushing back. So on that, I agree with the conventional wisdom about the U.S.-China relationship. Way more contentious now in part because of a change in the balance of power. Where I disagree with the consensus is on putting that degree of revisionism in perspective. As I mentioned in response to your last question, I think it's important, but it is far more manageable and constrained than the kinds of revisionist challenges the United States and other status quo powers have faced in the past. I mean, just to put this in perspective— The Cold War was driven in part by fear that the Soviet Union might literally be able to use its military power to subjugate West Germany. West Germany at the time of the Middle Cold War was two-thirds the size of the Chinese economy and one-quarter the size of the U.S. economy. There is no prize within grasp of China's military power right now and any feasible grasp that has that kind of significance for China's and America's respective positions. So, I agree with the status quo that it's a more fraught, tense relationship in part because of the changing power relationship. I disagree with the conventional wisdom on putting on the on assessing the overall significance and systemic alter, system altering nature of that challenge.
0: How has China responded to the Russian invasion of Ukraine? and the supposed end of the unipolar moment that many commentators have suggested this marks. What does this tell us about how China sees its own place in the international system?
1: Well, here I have to humbly uh, say that that's a question best uh, best directed to experts uh, in China's international relations, in particular those experts who make uh, a lo- put a lot of effort into studying China's perceptions and perspectives on the world. So uh, I'd love to read... Um, sort of insider influ, uh, insider access accounts of how Chinese leadership or even how China's um, sort of foreign affairs commentariat is reading these events in Ukraine. My understanding from China expertise that I've read and uh, and China experts I've spoken to is that there really was a period of exuberance in Beijing following the 2008 uh, financial crisis, that there was a period in which they, the model seemed to be uh, really, really working well in comparison to the uh, chaotic and disruptive U.S. model. And that was the period where we see this initiation of what is probably tiresomely called wolf-order diplomacy. Um, and um, much of this uh, China expertise tells me there has been a scaling back of China's expectations in the years since then. That said, the Chinese uh, view of uh, the Ukraine war could go in two different directions. Uh, one is Gosh, it's really hard to conquer territory, especially when that territory is backed up by the collective power of the West. So Russia isn't getting very far. If you're in Beijing, would you really want to volunteer to be in that position? On the other side, on the, uh, however, uh, it could, the view in China could, well be, uh, could rationally be, gosh, Russia's doing better against uh, these economic sanctions than we thought. Uh, what lessons should we draw from this? And I think you can have a debate about that. I'd love to know where the uh, where the China expertise, uh, where the China experts in Beijing are on how they think about Chinese vulnerability to economic statecraft. My own sense is the Russia lessons don't apply particularly well to China for the reasons you mentioned earlier. China's relationship to the world economy is very different than Russia's relationship to the world economy. So it's quite possible that China could be more vulnerable to economic statecraft let's say in a Taiwan scenario, then Russia has been to economic statecraft in the Ukraine scenario. If we are heading towards a world where
0: the US is not a unipolar power, and you can agree or disagree, I'd love to know your thoughts on that. If we do end up with that, what does that look like with the US not being unipolar anymore? Would China be taking up some of the US's current roles in that of what it's currently maintaining in terms of the world order from a unipolar point of view?
1: Well, I can't resist noting in response to your invitation to push back on the question that, you know, I think it's incumbent on experts uh, or people who uh, portray themselves as having some expertise in a subject to say, well, where where do you think things are going? And the conversation thus far has been very static about what the world is like today. And it's been retrospective. What was the world like in the 1990s or the 1970s or the 1800s? Um, But where do you think, where do we think it's going? I think it's helpful just to take a moment to stop and think about that. We don't know. Predictions are terrible. But if you had to predict, where would you put your money? And it does look now like it's it's at least fairly likely that China might peak. Again, there's a debate about this, but it's conceivable that it won't get out of the middle income trap. It's conceivable that it will peak somewhere below um, uh, a level of, of, of massively surpassing the U.S. economy in dollar terms. And if that happens, it's possible that you really actually wouldn't have a t- true decisive break and end to unipolarity, polarity, but instead you'd kind of have a slow erosion of the system where all of these so-called great powers uh, U.S., China, Russia, the rest, uh, essentially are losing sway compared to other parts of the world, significant regional players, etc., so that unipolarity might persist, but sort of be less important as the world becomes more diffused. But to get more direct in answer to your question, I think there is a preponderance of scholarship. I know is a controversial thing to say, and I know people in Beijing, Moscow, and many other capitals uh, don't agree with this. But in my judgment, the world becomes uh, more conflictual if the United States loses power to the point that it can no longer sustain these alliances I keep referring to. In other words, if unipolarity is a one superpower world, and if a one superpower world means the U.S. has the capacity to sustain these credible alliances, and if that ends, then we're looking at a world where the United States no longer has this capacity. Everybody has to fend for themselves. The EU has to fend for itself. Japan has to fend for itself. South Korea has to fend for itself. And the question to ask is, is that world better or worse, safer or more dangerous? I think it's more dangerous. I think faced with the challenges that they face, key players, such as South Korea and Japan, just to name two, would likely opt for nuclear weapons. I think key partners in the Middle East might opt for nuclear weapons. And frankly, you could even see nuclear spread in Europe, in which case you have a world with a lot more nuclear weapons powers which I see is more dangerous. Some may disagree, but I see it as more dangerous. I think you see more arms races. I think you see more uncertainty. I think you see more insecurity. And I think the global economy takes a hit as a result of that insecurity. So overall, to, to repeat, a world in which the U.S. no longer has the capacity to sustain these alliances is probably a more dangerous, more conflictual, and less cooperative one than the one we see today with all of the faults that we see on, decla- on, on display today.
0: Just to kind of a sidebar question, because we are close to Europe, is there any chance, say, a big player like the European Union, for example, could take up some of that mantle, maybe uh, rather than a unipolar grouping, but being a, a large multipolar? Maybe the economic, military indicators don't show that at the moment. But is there a possibility that there could be more of a transition to a, con- to a non-country actor, something or someone like the EU in this kind of world? Or are we, is it going for just uh, multipolarity in the way you've outlined?
1: I wish uh, the answer to that question were yes. I wish there were good grounds for the hope that the EU could stand as a more powerful strategic actor than it is today. Uh, unlike some, I think it would be a great world in which there were another strongly allied or less allied. I mean, let's let's posit that a stronger, more strategically autonomous Europe would be less closely tied to the United States. Even so, that world would be way better than the alternative uh, of a world where the EU simply is incapable of standing uh, up a more, autonomous, uh, on, uh, more autonomously on its own. Sadly, I actually don't see it as likely that the EU could assume state-like strategic capacity in international politics. I see very little evidence of this. Indeed, over the last 15 years, the main decliner in the world has been the EU. I mean, if you look at the world as a big pie chart, much of the rise is China, and much of the decline is not the U.S., It's the EU. And not only is the EU, um, sadly, and honest to God, sadly, in my view, declined as a share of world GDP, world military spending, et cetera, but there seems to be less optimism about its strategic actor capacity now than there was 20 years ago. I mean, I saw more seeming action on the EU as an autonomous strategic actor, frankly, in the early 2000s than now. Um, and I'm not seeing institutional developments that give me c- confidence that the EU could step into the breach. I don't see the evidence from Ukraine looking good on this regard. And so at the moment, sadly, I I see the EU as a very, very, very important actor, particularly in international trade, but in other areas. But I don't see it yet, nor do I see it becoming a true pole in the sense of an actor capable of taking dis- decisive strategic decisions and implementing them in real time.
0: So in a recent foreign affairs article, you warn that maintaining the U.S.'s international trading and diplomatic position requires policies that are less protectionist than the ones pursued by either the Trump or the Biden administrations. In what ways do you see Trump and Biden's economic policies as damaging to American unipolarity?
1: I'm not sure I see them as damaging to the unipolarity, I see them as potentially damaging to the U.S. and the global economy if they go too far. It's just a extraordinarily careful, delicate balancing act the, um, the top decision makers in the U.S. And, and their counterparts in European capitals and elsewhere have to make. How do you, how do you respond to China's uh, trading practices, many of which are indeed rule-breaking, and how do you respond to the potential vulnerability that you open your economies up to a country that is increasingly seen? with some justification as a strategic competitor. And how do you do that without it bleeding over into rampant protectionism, which we already had under the Trump administration, where the justifications for these policies were, not, were so blatantly, um, uh, transparently not really about security, uh, that you worry about uh, the slippery slope of these policies. So that is a tough one to, that's a tough um, uh, balancing act to maintain, strategic prudence, not allowing key infrastructure to be uh, outsourced to a country that is your peer competitor, that is your near peer competitor. On the other hand, maintaining some sort of firebreak against an unraveling of mutually beneficial trade. And all Brooks and I were doing in that foreign affairs article was warning about this. Now, I'm not saying that these policies, if followed, would undermine unipolarity. They could begin to undermine U.S. alliances if taken too far, if too much pressure is placed on allies without good strategic reason, if it starts to look too, it already looks to a certain degree this way, but if it starts to look to a dangerous degree, as if the United States leadership is using the strategic competition as a cover to protect itself against competition from European firms or to gain an upper hand purely for American firms, that could be corrosive. Uh, to the alliance in a way that would ultimately not de- benefit the United States. So those were the kinds of warnings we were issuing there.
0: So one thing we've only touched upon so far is U.S. domestic politics and the impact of domestic politics in in the in this the, this wider conversation. There's an old saying uh, in U.S. politics: "Politics ends at the water's edge." How does the increasing polarization of of U.S. politics, and that's across the U.S. you know, congressionally, even state, etc. How might that be affecting the U.S.'s unipolarity? Can there be poles within the unipolar U.S.? Because I see power, different parts of power, certainly in government. Is, is that possible?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, I think that uh, so I say the, I we have two answers to that question or a preliminary answer and then a, the real forward-looking answer. So the preliminary, backward-looking answer is so far... Uh, U.S. domestic polarization and dysfunction has not affected its, unipolarity, its unipolar position. On many, many dimensions, the U.S. position is actually stronger in many ways than it was uh, uh, some years ago. I mean, it's really striking to me if you look at certain indices. Um, and so that's happened despite all of the stuff we've been reading about for the last decade and more about the polarization, dysfunction, gridlock, of American politics. Going forward, however, the, so the past, however, may not be a prediction, uh, may, may not be a, a, a probative regarding where things are going. Because, of course, in any given moment, the future in some ways it looks more uncertain to the past, um, even though the past, we have to remember, was just as uncertain as the future is now back then. Uh, but it, it does look more uncertain in part because you are seeing what looks to be the strongest movement in American politics uh, uh, questioning the value of these alliances that I've been speaking about on and off throughout this interview. We've seen this before, the Pat Buchanan's, the various uh, 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 elements, uh, and indeed the first iteration of the Trump phenomenon. A lot of talk about uh, isolationism, a lot of talk about getting out of NATO, no real action in that regard. I'm seeing a stronger impetus in this direction, a stronger element of the Republican base that is questioning this fundamental precept of American foreign policy that goes back to 1948, 1950, that, that we're stronger with alliances, um, more people viewing alliances in transactional terms. And frankly, the the reticule, the, uh, the crosshairs of this group is, espe- is trained especially on Europe. In other words, there's a ton of genuine across the board questioning of America's global role. Um, But if you were to pick one region where this questioning is greatest, it's Europe, Uh, uh, with a view being, what are we doing aiding Ukraine when the real challenge is China? And so you can kind of get a log roll of skeptics about America's global role, partisan skeptics about America's global role. You can get a log roll going on this proposition, let's cut Europe loose, or at very least cut Ukraine loose, in order to focus on uh, the challenge of securing Taiwan, safeguarding Taiwan, and overall challenge of the US position in Asia. So, that I see as it looks to me now like a stronger challenge to the consensus than we've had in recent years. And so, that could affect America's standing as a superpower if it truly does back away from some of these core alliances. Remember, I started out the interview in response to your first question saying unipolarity is just a distribution of resources that gives. States' choices. We don't know what choices they're going to make, although I personally think the choice to maintain these alliances is the wise choice. That doesn't mean the American people or the American political system will agree. So this, we, see grid, we see polarization, and that polarization could lead to dysfunction, or it could lead to an actual strategic choice to de-emphasize or even withdraw from a particular set of commitments. For example, Europe. I think it still remains not a likely outcome, but its probability is higher than I've seen it in many years. And so there is a pa- case where domestic politics could clearly have fairly dramatic expe- uh, uh, effects at the international level, which is not surprising because I think your question gets at this point of, hey, if you're saying that America is such a powerful player and that its choices matter so much, then don't its domestic politics matter? And the answer to that question is yes. I think one
0: thing that is really interesting if you'd said to someone 30 or 40 years ago a Amer- American political candidate is saying something like make America great again as as was was Trump's call you would have thought maybe that plays into the US's role in the world as a as a unipolar force that seems to now be detached make America great again or America being great as is the as the call of the right doesn't seem to be attached to America's role in across the globe. Is that a recent phenomenon because of Trump, or do you think that's a longer-term trend in terms of how Americans see themselves and see their power, or see the power of the country that they live
1: in? Well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't generalize across all Americans. And I would defer to people who are spending their days studying the polling and the careful kind of assessment of Americans' preferences. Uh, so we're talking about a subgroup of American politics. Uh, that are ardent supporters of the MAGA-Trump um, phenomenon. And even among those supporters, research I've seen really suggests a variegated you know, array of, of motives, uh, with a lot of it being... Uh, so there, there's genuine policy differences. There are people concerned about immigration. They think Trump was going to better immigration policy. There are people concerned about taxes or the state's over, sort of overweening role in society. So I really... Pushback against sort of reducing all people who say they are Trump voters to just, oh, it's all about resentment and so on and so forth. So it's very careful, although I'm sure there's a big piece of that in there as well. They have different policy preferences as well. So it's a portion of the American electorate. And then when you try to parse this phenomenon about make America great again and what it means, you know, the difficulty is sort of like uh, p- pinning down this guy, uh, Donald Trump. Because the speeches do seem to – imply he wants to tell his audience that he's going to make America great again in some sort of domestic sense. People interpret as saying it's going to be great again as it's going to be back to the 1950s and we're going to put all this woke thing and minority uh, voting and uh, people of color back in some – some people think that's the subtext in Make America Great Again. But he also seems to imply that Make America Great would somehow also make America great in the world again. He does constantly criticize what he claims is, you know, a feckless or overly, uh, overly uh, uh, concessions-oriented foreign policy by his successor, Joe Biden. I personally don't see much substance in those, but there is a, a, a sense that He is not telling his voters that, oh, you know, we have a trade-off. We could make America great again domestically, but that would mean we can't be great internationally. He seems to want to say that we'll be great uh, in both realms, simultaneously with the magical Trump presidency, where he'll quickly and magically solve problems that he couldn't solve in his first term. Somehow they'll be solved this term with a couple of phone calls to foreign leaders. And, you know, for voters who aren't carefully following international issues, that that may have an appeal. So long-winded way of getting around to saying, I am not sure that the American electorate in any broader sense has rejected uh, a global role for the United States. I think a subset of it has, but I think the jury is out on how big that set is. I personally think it's not that big. Um, I think that, that if you ask polling questions in general, you still see a remarkable amount of internationalism in those responses that would surprise some people.
0: Thank you so much. So you have a book that's being published next year on great power subversion. Could you tell us a bit more about what you mean by subversion and how studying subversion tells us more about US-China and other great power interactions?
1: Yes, well, we just, it's a uh, nicely timed question that says that we just talked about domestic politics and we said that, boy, you know, If a country is really, really powerful, then it's hard to deny that its domestic politics will affect international politics. Well, if you buy that claim, then you might think, gee, you know, if I, as a a rival, could affect the domestic politics of a great power, even just a little, why it might have a big effect on my international position. And that's essentially the subject of the book that I'm co-authoring with Jill Kastner. It's a book about meddling in a hostile way in the domestic politics of a pure great power. Why does this matter? Well, it matters because uh, most of the power resources in international politics are concentrated in a small number of powers who have a huge influence on the nature of international politics. Yet most studies of this uh, phenomenon of political subversion or political meddling or covert action concentrate on what great powers do to smaller and weaker powers. That's a very important subject. But there is, as yet, no book-length study that simply studies, tries to unpack, puts the magnifying glass on, meddling in peer great powers along the lines of what Russia did to the United States in 2016. So that's the subject of our book. We take a lengthy historical, not lengthy, but a long-view historical uh, examination of this practice and then hone in on uh, Russia's 2016 operation and subsequent challenges in this realm of political subversion among great powers.
0: So just, just finally then, do you think these subversions are here to stay? We're going to see more of them and more different types, more dynamic types, bigger types, scarier types.
1: Uh, yes and no. In other words, yes, it's here to stay. You can't get rid of it. We studied it through history, going back to uh, uh, ancient classical Greece uh, and through the early modern period in the uh, 19th century, 20th century You'll never get rid of this for the reasons we already discussed. Namely, the payoff is huge. Costs are kind of low. If you can modulate it correctly, you might get some pretty big payoffs. On the other hand, looking at it through the long view as we do, we do not see, and this may be controversial to some, but we do not see new technology and even newly, seemingly newly vulnerable democracies as an unprecedented opening to subversion. We think subversion is likely to stay roughly within the kind of contours and confines that we identify, notwithstanding AI and cyber and all the opportunities for political misinformation and all the seeming dysfunction uh, that you see across the democratic world. Professor William Alforth, thank you so much for taking to the ballpark today. It's been my pleasure.
0: William Wolforth is Daniel Webster Professor in the Department of Government at Dartmouth College. And that's it for this extra inning of The Ballpark. Thanks to Professor William Wolforth for joining us in this episode. For more information about the Failing US Centre, you can go to our website at lse.ac.uk forward slash united hyphen states. On Twitter and Instagram, we're at LSE underscore US, and on Facebook, we're LSE United States. This Extra Inning was produced by Chris Gilson and Anderson Tan. A theme tune is by Ranger and the Rearrangers, a Seattle-based gypsy jazz band. You can look them up at rangerswings.com. To listen to all our previous episodes, just enter LSC Ballpark into your search engine of choice. You'll find us. We're free to listen to, and unlike lots of other podcasts, we're ad-free. We'd love to hear what you think about the show. Email us any feedback at uscenter at lsc.ac.uk, or you can send us a tweet at lsc underscore us. And please, tell your friends about us. The content and opinions expressed in this podcast do not reflect those of the failing US Centre or the London School of Economics. Thanks so much for listening.